Well, happy to, to be with you all. Um, for those of you that, um, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, and I forget, I, I live in a place that all of my family is, um, which is kind of nice. And so I don't, uh, I don't travel for, for holidays much up to, uh, I was telling somebody, they're like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going north. And they're like, oh, like, how, I'm like, oh, oh, North Dallas. Sorry, like, that's my, my family's just like 30 minutes north. But um, anyway, if you are, are just here, um, uh, worshiping with us for the first time, it's great to have you here. And um, for those that, that this is a part of our, our church family, um, grateful to, to walk alongside you all and just to continue to follow in the footsteps of Jesus together. And that's what we've been doing in this series in Mark's Gospel. Um, we have been following the, the path of Jesus as he has led his disciples. And, and the dominant question in this first half of Mark's gospel, so we're coming up at the end of, of chapter 6, so we're, we're finally making some headway in Mark. Um, the dominant question in the first part of this um, gospel is the very basic question about Jesus. Who is this man? That is the one question that, that Mark is trying to get across very clearly, and it's the question even we saw uh, last week in chapter 6, King Herod is asking this question. Um, he asked that about John the Baptist. Who is this man, Jesus? Uh, right before he arrests him and later has him beheaded, again, um, kind of gnarly. The disciples are asking that question. They're seeing all these amazing things about Jesus front and center, but they still have these questions. Like when Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4, and they're terrified at the storm, and then they're more terrified about Jesus after, where they say, who is this man that, that even the wind and the storms obey him? Now, I don't want you to hear me say this so you like tune out to say like, oh, this is basically the same thing that Mark has been doing all throughout the first six chapters um, in this gospel. But I do think it is kind of the same framework of this, like, who is this person? He's just trying to make this crystal clear. But there is something in our text today um, that I think it really brings up some relevant questions for um, the modern mind um, and questions about belief and unbelief. And it speaks, I believe this passage speaks to both Christians and skeptics alike, because I think it addresses some of the major obstacles that people have to belief. And so here's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to walk through this section of Mark chapter 6, a few verses at a time, um, make some comments here and there, but then we're going to spend the majority of our time um, looking at what I, I think will be a, a helpful and productive conversation about the question of, of a God who is powerful and also the presence of, of storms and, and pain and suffering in our world. So if you want to follow along with me, um, I'd always encourage that if you would um, want to grab a Bible on the back page or on the back table there, uh, page 475 in that Bible I read from the NIV. And so I'm going to read just a little bit, make some comments, read a little bit, make some comments. So follow along with me. Mark 6, 45. Here's what it says. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So let me pause there. If you were here last week, you saw this famous uh, miracle that just happened, the feeding of the 5,000, right? So you can imagine the disciples might be um, exhausted from a long day. They were already tired going into that day. Um, they might also be on the spiritual high. Like, think about what they just got to be a part of. One of the greatest miracle accounts of, of Jesus using them to feed 5,000 plus people. But then Jesus says, okay, you go. You get on the boat. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. And then it says that he went to go spend some time in prayer. And, and I think that's a really helpful image for me because 
often it's the opposite tendency of at least what I have, but I think it's the opposite tendency that we have. And, and that is we pray in times of great need more, right? Or we'll pray in times of, of great distress, right? On the spiritual mountaintops where everything seems to be going well, those are not the times that we are pleading with the Lord in prayer as much as when we feel that deep need. And Jesus just gives a really great example for us here. They just had this amazing moment of ministry, and he stops, and he goes to the Lord to be fervent in prayer. And I think there's something about that that it's very telling. I don't know what Jesus' motives were in that moment. I mean, he prayed a lot, so it could have just been the normal part of his practice. But I think prayer, when times are going really well, it keeps our pride in check. Like, it keeps our ego down a little bit. It keeps reminding us that, that God is the source of the good things in our life and, and that we remember that everything good that we have comes from him. So this is what he sees when he's praying. Verse 47, it says, Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So he's up on the mountainside, and so and maybe it's like full moon. It's, he could see pretty far, it seems. And it says that some significant amount of time has passed, and his disciples are still out there in the middle of the water. They shouldn't be there, but they're still there in that same point. And it tells us because there is this heavy wind. There's, there is a storm that is pushing against them, and they're not able to get very far. Uh, it sounds like maybe the storm wasn't as strong as the first time they were on the water, when Jesus was in the boat, the time he was sleeping, and then he wakes up, and they're freaked out, and he says, chill out, I'm God in the flesh, right? And he calms the storm. Uh, they were not surprised, probably, that here we are on the water again, and here we are facing another storm. Like, remember, th this is what the storm represented to a Jew. It represented chaos, disorder. So it's probably not surprising they're having another terrifying night out at sea. And so what does Jesus do? Does he see them and does he jump up and he said like, oh no, my friends need help and he gets to it right away? No, it says that he didn't really act with any sort of urgency. This is what we see in verse 48. It says, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them and shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. I'll pause there again. So before we get to the, like the elephant in the room of, did it just say he's walking on water, right? Look at this part where it says, shortly before dawn in verse 48. These words literally mean around the fourth watch of the night, um, which one commentator said that would have been between three and six in the morning. So this would mean that the disciples have been struggling on the water for most of the night with little to no progress. Like y'all, Jesus saw them. And that is a long time that he just lets them struggle out there, okay? He knows that they were probably out there in fear, and he came to their help eventually, but not right away. And I, and I want you to hold on to that, because I think we learn a lot from this, and we'll come to that. But eventually Jesus gets there, walking on water, yes. And he speaks these words of comfort to them. It says, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, or some translations say, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And then in verse 51, he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves for, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. 
So I actually want to end there today. I know the text says we're going to go a little longer, but that's as far as we're going to get this morning. And as I said, this passage introduces some very modern and relevant questions for us to wrestle with. And I I want to get at those questions or those modern ideas with two questions, okay? We're going to look at two questions. One, who is this man? And the second question, why don't we care who this man is, okay? That might be a little strange way to ask it, but who is this man and why don't we care who this man is, So who is this man? Remember, that's the dominant question throughout the first half of Mark's gospel. And maybe you remember this about Mark, something that's unique. His favorite word is immediately. He's constantly moving high pace immediately. This is, Mark is more of a of a Western um, a writer, and Western thinker, more likely for his Roman audience because they were Western. Eastern was much more poetic and meditative and Western. It's just like cold, hard facts get to the point, right? So he says immediately a lot to keep the pace high, moving from event to event to establish uh, his case about who this man is. And there's only so many ways that you can answer that question, who is this man? But we do find something different here that I'd never, honestly never noticed about this miracle story before. Some scholars have called this passage a theophany, okay? Theophany, you want to say that word, theophany? Um, theophany is a, is a theological term that just simply means a revelation of God. Okay, so Jesus is a teacher, right? He is a rabbi, and he does what teachers do. He is always teaching. He's in, intentional in everything he does. So, why this miracle? Like, what's going on here? This is, it's got to be more than just a party trick, right? Like, hey, I can walk on water. Tell your friends. It's cool. These Jewish men would have known their scriptures, their Old Testament by heart. And they would know that from the Old Testament, there's only one who can walk on water. And that is Yahweh, the Lord their God. Job chapter 9 says this, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77 says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43 says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. When he's coming to them, walking on the waters, what he's telling them, Guys, I am Yahweh, your God, the Lord in the flesh. I am the creator of the universe. And he doesn't stop communicating that there, just in case they're a little slow on the uptake which seems like maybe it was the case. That comment where in verse 52, it says, you know, their hearts were hardened. They were prevented from having faith because of the whole thing with the fish and loaves and their unbelief. So Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I, verse 50. Or another translation, or another way to translate that, you could put that more literally, take courage, I am. I am. This again takes us back to the Old Testament, right? Think of the story in Exodus where God first spoke to Moses through a burning bush. And, he, and, and God says to him, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. Go back to Pharaoh and, and you know, challenge him. And, and Moses says, well, when I go back to the people, what do I tell them? When they ask who sent me, what do I say? In other words, he's asking, what's your name, right? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And that is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. So Jesus here is saying, take courage because I am the I am. The same God that called Moses, 
The same God who led his people out of slavery, passed through the Red Sea into the promised land. He's saying, the great I am is with you right now in this moment. Therefore, do not be afraid. And if it wasn't clear that Jesus is communicating this about his identity, if it's not clear that this is a, a theophany, right? There's another strong hint in verse 49 where it says that Jesus passed them by. And scholars look at this and they say that verse to pass by is a deliberate echo of some of these defining moments in the Old Testament. When God reveals himself to his people, when God put Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses could see the Lord pass him by. Or when God told Elijah to stand on the mountain for the Lord is about to pass by. That's the language referring to God revealing himself. So who is this man? Mark is very clear here. He is none other than Yahweh God, the creator of the universe. And what does that mean for us? I mean, you can't really beat the application from Jesus himself. Verse 50, where he says, take courage, don't be afraid. No matter what is coming your way in life, he is saying, I am a source of strength beyond anything you can comprehend. And see, a life following Jesus is meant to be one of adventure and, and risk and sacrifice, right? Daily taking up your cross. It is not an easy life. It is not a pain-free life. And so the call to have courage is needed, right? For a life spent following Jesus, we need to hear these words. Don't be afraid. Take courage. And if it's true that this is who Jesus is, it also changes our relationship to him. Um, I heard this story once from, from Tim Keller, who's a, you know, a pastor that I, I've admired um, for many, many years. And he told a story about a woman named Barbara Boyd, who was the first person, he says, that taught him how to read the Bible when he became a Christian in college. And Keller says that he never has forgotten this illustration that he heard from, from Barbara Boyd. Uh, she said this, If the distance between the earth and the sun which is 92 million miles, if that distance was the thickness of a piece of paper, and the diameter of our or then the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in a part of the universe we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all of the other universes. And if Jesus is the Son of God who holds all this together with the, with the word of his power, this is what she says. She says, is that the kind of person you ask in your life to be your personal assistant? And then Keller said, then Barbara told us to go outside and to sit down for one hour and say nothing and just think about what this means for your life. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a great exercise, right? Keller goes on, he says, if you intellectually assent and say, yes, I think Jesus probably is the Son of God. I think he probably died for our sins, but he is not the center of your life. Then you may think you understand, but you really don't. It's not just a matter of commitment or a lack of discipline. There's a spiritual deadness. You don't really see it, understand it, or get it. And then he says, wake yourself up. Mark's gospel is trying to wake us up to this question. Who is this man? And if this is true, that he is the creator of the universe in the flesh, all of the ways that we relate to him, uh, the, the, the implications are endless with this. But this kind of argument of the identity of Jesus, it might hold sway with Christians, but I really think if we're being honest, there's not a lot of people outside the church who care about the question, who is Jesus? And that's why I wanted to look at a second question today is, 
why don't we care who this man is? The first question about his identity is, is aimed at people who have seen him and, and believed him, right? And, and maybe it speaks to um, most of us here in, in this community. But I, I think the second question actually is aimed at unbelief or, or obstacles to belief. And, and that probably is people who are outside the church more. But I think if we're being honest, there's a lot of us. So that's part of us, too. That we have a lot of these questions where we, like, like the, the father in, later in Mark's gospel that we'll see him who says, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? There's a lot of us that sit in that tension. So what do I mean when I say that we don't care who this man is? Um, I don't find a lot of people asking this question that directly. Who is Jesus, right? It's either you, you have a view on this, you have an answer, and you think he is who the Bible claims, or it's just kind of irrelevant. Like, it doesn't really matter. And I think absolutely the disciples and, and the Jewish religious leaders in the Bible and the crowds and the Romans and, and all of the government officials, they are all asking that question with great interest. Who is this man? Because if he really was the divine Messiah, it changed everything in their world. But the world we live in, there's a huge cultural gap from, from the world of the Bible to where we are today, right? And you think about it, like every person that we read about in the New Testament is laser focused on the answer to this question, who is this Jesus? And today, I think that question is more of like, I mean, maybe it's kind of interesting, but it really has no bearing in my life. Like, it's cool, whatever you want to think about Jesus, I'm not going to tell you you have to think certain ways about him. I'm not going to impose my belief on you, but just also don't impose your belief on me. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to think about Jesus. Um, I was thinking about this. I feel kind of bad. Um, I was thinking about the Rangers winning the World Series, and I don't even think we gave like a shout out, okay? So any, any Rangers fans in here, anybody like deeply invested? Jamil, we won, okay, respect. Um, see, you know, I feel like there's a lot of churches in Dallas where you get like Sunday people wearing Cowboys jerseys. It's a little different vibe here, but, but I was thinking about this. Imagine you are this lifelong diehard Rangers fan, and imagine you are there in Arizona, in that stadium, in the final game of the World Series, and it is the final out, and your team is about to win the championship for the first time ever, there is nothing more important to you than in that moment than the Rangers winning. There is nothing more important than that question of, are we going to win this thing, right? There is no distraction that's going on. So I feel like that's on the one side, and on the other side, it's more like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in baseball, and maybe I'm at a restaurant that's got the game on TV, and it's also got like 10 other games, but I'm, you know, here on a date or here with my spouse, and, and the game might be there, and you might be looking up and checking the score here and there, but largely it has no bearing in your, in your life, right? It is completely irrelevant. And I think that's a lot of how our modern world and the world of, of the, the skeptical, atheist, agnostic, whatever you title you want to put on that, um, the question of who is Jesus is, is largely irrelevant. And I think we would see more people coming to faith if, if, if that was the dominant question, just with simple, logical, rational explanations of like, here are the claims of the Bible, and here's the evidence for the resurrection. But I think it's like, yeah, somebody telling you in that bar, hey, the Rangers just won the World Series. You're like, cool. Like, you might be fired up, but a lot of people are like, well, whatever. So, Am I saying that this text in the Bible, it has zero relevance in our modern life? Uh, obviously, I don't believe that. I'm a pastor, right? I'm like, everything in here, I'm going to make a connection to your life somehow. But I do think in this text, we, we find one of the most common objections to Christianity. 
And I think also for those outside the the Christian tradition, but also those who are inside the, the Christian faith, I think this also has one of the most important lessons to teach us about Jesus and belief altogether, because I I think in this story, we find the simple fact that on the one hand, Jesus can be who he claims to be, Yahweh, the creator, the Lord God Almighty, and yet there still can be storms, there still can be fear, and, and for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't always rush to deliver people from those circumstances. And I think this story in a roundabout way introduces the great question of the problem of pain. And it is my personal conviction that that the presence of storms in the world and the reality of pain and suffering, that these are some of the most common obstacles for people to believe. And I was thinking about that. In my own personal world today, I, I was thinking about those places of pain and this is what was bubbling to my head of, of the war in Israel and Palestine. You're seeing images of people suffering. Um, the sudden death of, of a dear friend and pastor who was a father and a husband, right? Uh, a breast cancer diagnosis and a young friend, chronic health issues with another, divorce and alcoholism with one of my best friends and a broken family and an affair with a mentor, a rapid death from cancer and somebody else, fertility struggles, uh, and with some, a stillbirth with another. I mean, like, it took me 30 seconds to come up with that list. And I know we all have our own list, right? There are many, many people who are outside of Christianity who look, take one look at their list and they take one look at the world and they think, there can be no God. There is no way that there can be a God. Or if there is a God who allows this kind of world that is not a God, I want anything to do with. And so I don't think people are really in disbelief because they don't have a full answer to the question of, like, who is Jesus? I think people disbelieve because they have a full answer about the pain and suffering in the world that they can perceive. And so the story has a great paradox that we have a lot to learn from, that Jesus is God and there still is the presence of suffering. And these two realities clash in many, many minds. And this might even be one of the fundamental questions of faith, right? How are we to think about a God who allows a world like this? And I was thinking about this, and I hope this is helpful and not confusing, but I was thinking about this like a simple like math equation, right? Um, like a functional equation that many people operate under. So, um, like I said, maybe, maybe this is helpful, or maybe you're like, Andrew, that was the worst idea. Like, you introduced math on a Sunday morning, like it's a really confusing concept. But here's our functional equation, right? First equation, the first thing you have, Jesus, who is claiming to be God— He is the divine Lord and Savior, right? And plus, you add with that a life that is good and successful and healthy and without storms. And what you get in that equation is faith. You get some that say, yeah, those things are true. The Bible is real. God is real. Jesus is all that he says he is. And I think that's not an uncommon equation in the church. But the problem is that equation is very, very fragile. Like that faith is dependent purely on positive outcomes and positive circumstances in your life. And it's only a matter of time before that kind of faith meets the real cold, hard world and it crumbles. The decay of the broken world will catch up to you. Sinful people will hurt you. The church will hurt you, right? Or that view requires you to be dishonest about your own feelings or dishonest about the the pain that you experience. 
You have to explain this away because these can't be bad things happening and that, that, that it can't be a lack of blessing in my life. So you must put a positive spin on everything until you can't anymore and you can't hold it together anymore. And often what happens is you move into this second equation. The second equation looks something like this. First, you have Jesus claiming to be God, claiming to be Christ, the divine Lord and Savior. And then you add with that the storms of life. War, famine, pain, suffering, uh, a, a church or Christians that hurt and disappoint. And what does that equal? What comes out of that? Well, these negative things certainly must disprove the God of the Bible. That maybe Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or the Bible is a fairy tale. And I think many of us, maybe we've been in those places, maybe we currently are in those places, or a lot of people that we love are, are operating under that equation. The thing about that equation, it's much more intellectually honest about the world around us. Like the world is just awful sometimes. But my concern for people who operate under this equation is that it often leaves you without hope. Like sure, it's honest about suffering and it's honest about how bleak our world can be, but that's all there is unless we're able to fix it ourselves, right? And I think the second equation is, and I'm, my bias is obvious here, like I follow Jesus and I believe in Jesus. But I think this second equation can be incredibly dissatisfying. Like it can rob us of these moments of transcendence and beauty and meaning and purpose in the world. And, and you could hear this in, in, in the words of, um, there's a woman who wrote this this last week. Her name is Ion Hirsi Ali. Uh, and if you know her, she's a, a well-known writer. She's a very popular podcast, and she had been a very outspoken atheist until she became a Christian this last week. And in, in an essay, this is what she wrote. She says, I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? So our story today presents us with an alternative, though. A, a third equation, a better equation, I believe, and one that allows us to be honest about our convictions about Jesus and, and what we see in the Bible, and also honest about the world and our feelings about the pain in this world. And I think this is the equation that we find that Jesus himself embodies in his own life. And that third equation goes something like this. Jesus claims to be God, the, the Christ, the divine Lord and Savior. And with that, you add a world that is very, very painful. It is very real that is filled with suffering and death and disappointment. And there is no hiding it and there's no celebrating it. And when you add those things together, in a mysterious way, it can still allow for the space to say that God is real. The Bible is true. Jesus is who he says he is and yet is somehow still working out his purposes in your life and in this world in the middle of all of these storms. So Jesus is the divine Lord of all as it's claiming here. And yet, as we see in the story, his disciples can still suffer. Our world is plagued by famine and war. And yet, the presence of these storms do not disprove God. 
In fact, a storm might just be the very thing that God not only allows, but that he uses it to accomplish something deep and transformative in our lives. The, uh, the great writer Elizabeth Elliot was no stranger to suffering. Um, and if you're familiar with her story, her husband, Jim Elliot, was uh, famously killed by a, a native tribe in Ecuador while he was evangelizing um, as a missionary there. And then her second husband, not too many years after that, died from cancer. And she was well acquainted with suffering, and yet she writes this. She says, suffering is never for nothing. How do I know that? The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. And I imagine that most of you would say exactly the same. See, suffering can accomplish something in us that peace and and quiet and calm can never accomplish. But I should add here that while this may be true, this might not be the most comforting thing that somebody who is going through the middle of a storm wants to hear, right? Your life is crumbling around you and you say, hey, God's doing something great in that. You know, that might not be the best Hallmark card to send to somebody who is in the middle middle of the, the valley of the shadow of death. But this passage does hint at us, and it gives us one final clue for how we can withstand all the storms that that we will experience in this life. And that goes back to the disciples in the boat. How does Jesus tell them that they they could take courage in the middle of the storm? Remember, he says, do not fear. I am the I am, and I am with you. And this is the great mystery of of the Bible. Well, there's a lot of mysteries of the Bible. It could be a little confusing sometimes, right? But I think one of the most profound mysteries is that God does not promise us a life without storms, but he promises us that he will be with us in the storms. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 23, you're probably familiar with this. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you are with me, right? I will not fear because you are with me. Isaiah 43 says this, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. There is no false promise of a life without the waves and the rivers and the fires. There is no call call to just mentally tough it out and put mind over matter. It is simply this promise that when these things come, I will be with you. And that's where we find a potential, an equation that will give us a joy that is resilient and lasting, but not one that is naive about the world around us. Um, The writer Janet Stewart once said that joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. And as we turn the corner in these next couple of weeks, as we kind of fix our eyes more on Christmas in this, uh, as we approach this Advent season, we are reminded of this great story that, that God became flesh. And we are told that his name was to be Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And that with us takes on a whole different level of meaning when we look to the cross. He is with us so much that he entered into our world, not just to sit on a king's throne, but to die a criminal's death on the cross. Like he knows all of the pain we know and far more than we can imagine. 
And the great mystery, though, is that this is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. That is the mystery that somehow in our sufferings, we are united with Christ in his suffering. And it's not something that I wake up and I I jump out of bed and I think, God, I hope to suffer in a way that connects me to you. Like, I don't think anybody chases after that stuff, right? But the reality is that when we go through that, that is often our experience. And that is only true because the God who took on flesh, who died to defeat sin and death and the evil of the world, promises that suffering does not have the last word. He promises that a renewal of our world is in fact coming. And that all of the suffering and the storms we face in this life will be redeemed by God for something far greater than we can ever imagine. And, and a microcosm of that mystery is what we, we look at when we come to this table here. It's this profound mystery, this paradox that says, through death we actually find life. And so maybe for you, that, that's what you, you think about, you meditate on when you come to this table today. You, you think about the ways that there is darkness and there is despair and there is um, pain and there is suffering, whether it's you are experiencing it or people that you love are experiencing it. And maybe it's just simply asking the Lord, maybe it's not just to fix it, but to be with you in the middle of that. And let these ways that you touch this bread and you drink of this cup, as tangible as those are, let those remind you that is as real as he is with you in the midst of your suffering. So we remember that with these words that Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. After you given thanks, he took this bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you and to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And what we do for one another when we come to this table is we are proclaiming, we are telling the story about this kind of God to one another. Because it says, as often as we eat this bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death and resurrection until he returns. That's the hope that we need. And we need one another in that because it can be really easy to forget that sometimes. So I'll invite you forward if you are somebody, even if it's your first time today and you are somebody who has looked to Jesus and called on him as your Savior and your Lord, you are welcome um, to receive the gifts of God for the people of God. So come forward when you're ready.